Chapter 7 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. The Conquest by Oscar Majot. Chapter 7 Oristown. The Little Crow Reservation. When I left St. Louis on the night of October 4th, I headed for Oristown to buy someone's relinquishment. I had $2,500. From Omaha the journey was made on the C&RW's one train a day that during these times was loaded from end to end with everybody discussing the little crow and the buying of relinquishments. I was the only negro on the train and an object of many inquiries as to where I was going. Some of those whom I told that I was going to buy a relinquishment seemingly regarded it as a joke, judging from the meaning glances cast at those nearest them. An incident occurred when I arrived at Oristown, which is yet considered a good joke on a real estate man then located there by the name of Keeler, who was also the United States Commissioner. He could not only sell me a relinquishment, but could also take my filing. I had a talk with Keeler, but as he did not encourage me in my plans to make a purchase, I went to another firm, a young lawyer and a fellow by the name of Slater, who ran a livery barn around the corner. Watkins, the lawyer, impressed me as having more ambition than practical business qualities. However, Slater took the matter up and agreed to take me over the reservation and show me some good claims. If I bought, the drive was gratis. If not, $4 per day. And I accepted his proposition. After we had driven a few miles, he told me Keeler had said to him that he was a fool to waste his time hauling a D-nigger around over the reservation, that I didn't have any money, and I was just stalling. I flushed angrily and said, show me what I want and I will produce the money. What I want is something near the west end of the county. You say the relinquishments are cheaper there, and the soil is richer. I don't want big hills or rocks, nor anything I can't farm but I want a nice level or gentle rolling quarter section of prairie near some town to be that has prospect of getting the railroad when it is extended west from Oristown. By this time we had covered the three miles between Oristown and the reservation line and had entered the newly opened section which stretched for 30 miles to the west. As we drove on I became attracted by the long grass, now dead, which was of a brownish hue and as I gazed over the miles of it laying like a mighty carpet, I could seem to feel the magnitude of the development and industry that would some day replace this state of wilderness. To the northeast the Missouri River wound its way, into which empties the Whetstone Creek, the breaks of which resembled miniature mountains, falling abruptly, then rising to a point where the dark shale side glistened in the sunlight. It was my longest drive in a buggy, we could go perhaps three or four miles on a table-like plateau, then drop suddenly into small canyons like ditches and rise abruptly to the other side. After driving about 15 miles, we came to the town, as they called it, but I would have said village of Hedrick, a collection of frame shacks with one or two houses, many roughly constructed sod buildings, the long brown grass hanging from between the sod, giving it a frizzled appearance. Here we listened to a few boasters and mountebanks whose rustic eloquence was no doubt intended to give the unwary the impression that they were on the site of the coming metropolis of the West. 
a county seat battle was to be fought the next month, and the few citizens of the sixty days declared they would wrest it from Fairview, the present county seat situated in the extreme east end of the county. If it cost them a million dollars, or one half of all they were worth, they boasted of Hedrick's prospects, sweeping their arms around in eloquent gestures, in alluding to the territory tributary to the town, as though half the universe were Hedrick territory. Nine miles northwest, where the land was very sandy and full of pits, into the buggy wheels dropped with a grinding sound, and where magnesia rocks cropped out of the soil, was another budding town by the name of Kirk. The few prospective citizens of this burg were not so enthusiastic as those in Hedrick, and when I asked one why they located the town in such a sandy country, he opened up with a snort about some pinhead engineer from the government who didn't know enough to jump straight up a locating the town in such an all-fired sandy place. But he concluded with a compliment that plenty of good water could be found at from 15 to 50 feet. This sandy land continued some three miles west, and we often found springs along the streams. After ascending an unusually steep hill, we came upon a plateau, where the grass, the soil, and the lay of the land were entirely different from any we had yet seen. I was struck by the beauty of the scenery, and it seemed to charm and bring me out of the spirit of depression the sandy stretch brought upon me. Stretching for miles to the northwest and to the south, the land would rise in a gentle slope to a hogback and as gently slope away to a draw, which drained to the south. Here the small streams emptied into a larger one, winding along like a snake's track, and thickly wooded with a growth of small hardwood timber. It was beautiful. From each side the land rose gently, like huge wings, and spread away as far as the eye could reach. The driver brought me back to earth, after a mile of such fascinating observations, and pointing to the north, said, there lays one of the claims. I was carried away by the first sight of it. The land appeared to slope from a point, or table, and to the north of that was a small draw, with water. We rode along the south side, and on coming upon a slight rise, which he informed me was the highest part of the place, we found a square white stone set equally distant from four small holes, four or five feet apart. On one side of the stone, was inscribed a row of letters, which ran like this, SWC, SWQ, SEC, 29-97-72, W, 5th PM, and on the other sides were some other letters similar to these. What does all that mean? I asked. He said the letters were initials describing the land and reading from the side next to the place we had come to see, read, the southwest corner of the southwest quarter of section 29, township 97, and range 72, west of the 5th principal meridian. When we got back to Oristown, I concluded I wanted the place, and dreamed of it that night. It had been drawn by a girl who lived with her parents across the Missouri. To see her, we had to drive to their home, and here a disagreement arose, which for a time threatened to cause a split. I had been so enthusiastic over the place that Slater figured on a handsome commission, but I had been making inquiries in Oristown, and found I could buy relinquishments much cheaper than I had anticipated. 
I had expected the price to be about $1,800 and came prepared to pay that much, but was advised to pay not over $500 for land as far west as the town of Magori, which was only four miles northwest of the place I was now dickering to buy. We had agreed to give the girl $375, and I had partly agreed to give Slater $200 commission. However, I decided that was too much, and I told him I would give him only $75. He was in for going right back to Oristown and calling the deal off. But when he figured up that two and a half days driving would amount only to $10, he offered to take $100, but I was obstinate and held out for $75, finally giving him $80, and in due time became the proud owner of a Little Crow homestead. All this time I had been writing to Jessie. I had written first while I was in Eton, and she had answered in the same demure manner in which she had received me at our first meeting, and had continued answering the letters I had written from all parts of the continent in such the same way. For a time I had quit writing, for I felt she was really too young and not taking me seriously enough. But after a month my sister wrote me, asking why I did not write to Jessie that she asked about me every day. This inspired me with a new interest and I began writing again. I wrote her in glowing terms all about my advent in Dakota, and as she was of a reserved disposition, I always asked her opinion as to whether she thought it a sensible move. I wanted to hear her say something more than, I was at a cantata last evening and had a nice time, and so on. Furthermore, I was sceptical. I knew that a great many coloured people considered farming a deprivation of all things essential to a good time. In fact, to have a good time was the first thing to be considered, and everything else was secondary. Jessie, however, was not of this kind. She wrote me a letter that surprised me, stating among other things that she was 17 and in her senior year high school, that she thought I was grand and noble as well as practical, and was sorry she couldn't find the words to tell me all she felt, but that which satisfied me suited her also. I was delighted with her answer, and wrote a cheerful letter in return, saying I would come to see her Christmas. End of chapter 7